Hey folks, on March 11th, CAFE hosted Boston College history professor Heather Cox Richardson and Yale University history professor Joanne Freeman for a live Zoom conversation about game-changing presidential administrations. The talk took place just hours after President Biden signed the American Rescue Act into law. It is one of the most ambitious pieces of legislation in a long time, and it provided a perfect occasion to look back at history for context and inspiration. Professors Richardson and Freeman discussed the transformational presidencies of Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They also answered viewer questions about the role of Congress, the danger of executive overreach, and much more. And now, on to their conversation. Welcome to everyone for joining us here on Cafe Live uh, for this conversation between Heather Cox Richardson and myself. Um, And I know we've both been looking forward to this, to the chance to do one of the things that we like to do together, which is just engage in conversation about stuff. There has been a lot of stuff to talk about in the recent past. And so part of what we want to do here is have a chance to talk to each other about, as Preet suggested, how the past can really show us something about the present. And obviously the present moment that we're in is a Biden moment, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, And we also wanted, obviously, to share that with you, to give you a chance to ask some questions, and for you to actually enjoy this conversation as much as we do, because that's part of the fun of history as well. So welcome, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm glad this night has finally arrived. And in a way, I think, Heather, the, the thing I'm going to start with, so, so not surprisingly, Heather and I pondered what we should do, what we should start with. And it had a, a nice Zoom conversation about this. And at one point, Heather told an anecdote, which we both, of course, said, ha, <laughs> that seems like something that might lead to a subject. So Heather, tell me, tell everyone, not just me, about this email that you got and, and why it struck you. Well, so I would love to do that. I also want to say how pleased I am to be doing this because what what viewers don't know is that Joanne and I do a lot of these sort of presentations, but generally what we do is we tell people facts of what happened, but then we go out by ourselves and play with ideas and think about things in new ways. And the idea behind this conversation was to show you a little bit of what we do um, just as we think things over. And and I had such a good time with planning this show that I said to her, you know, maybe we should skip the live thing and write a book together instead about it. So, so it all came from this. I wrote the other night about the American American Rescue Plan, and I wrote about it as a game changer in American history and how it really showed this major sea change in history. And I got an angry letter from a reader who said that that sounded very much like I was shilling for the Democrats, and how could I say such a thing? It was no longer, my my letter was no longer even-handed. And I, I wrote back and I said, you know, I don't quite know what to say because I didn't take a position on the American Rescue Plan, but I don't know how you can look at that particular piece of legislation and not see it as a game changer, not see it as a sea change. So I was talking to Joanne about it and I said, you know, but but that kind of begs the question, how do you tell what a sea change is in history, especially when we are living through it? Are we living through a sea change? And so we both went and thought about it. And, you know, you think about it, Joe Biden's done a lot of stuff since he got into office. He started with the executive orders and the executive memos, and he has changed our stance toward Russia. And he has, you know, gone through a whole long list of changes in the cabinet and inclusion that look like they're a big deal. But you know what? Most presidents do things that look like a big deal. So we started to think about what it means for an administration to be a game changer. And I, of course, said, oh, it's all about economics. And Joanne (laughs) said, 
Not so fast. So we actually came up with a list of what it means to have a game-changing presidency. And then, as one does, we went through every president (laughs) in history to decide whether or not that person was a game-changer. And stunningly, Martin Van Buren did not make the list. It's shocking. But I'm going to let you do this, Joanne, because you're the one who said, hey, hang on with the economics. There's something more important. Okay, so you want want me to talk about the sort of blob of things that we listed? Yeah, yeah. let's okay. let's go through what it takes to be a game okay. changer. So, uh, and and some of these I think are going to be obvious in a way, but I think taken together they really um, offer a portrait of a sort of grouping of things that would logically lead to game changing and not just a good start of a presidency. So the first thing we thought about, which is an obvious one, is a dramatic break from what came before. And we're gonna talk about um, a couple of these presidents after we marched through all the presidents and left out Martin Van Buren. Um, We're gonna talk about these presidents who in one way or another, that's precisely what happened, that there was a dramatic, clear, visual break. And that often that break in one way or another was pushing towards a more democratic direction. We also talked about presidents who choose to have a distinctive style of some kind that perhaps a persona that resonates or a a kind of presidency that they communicate, whether that's in what they wear or how they act or any other means. Today, I guess it can be (laughs) how you tweet. Um, But regardless, they communicate something about themselves through their style. We talked about presidents who understand the range and use of the presidency and make use of it. And along with that, who understand the moment that they're in and use the presidency to think about that moment and to think ahead as well as to the impact of what they're doing. We talked about the fact that I think game-changing presidents often have a fast communication or message or impact in some way. There's something that along with it being a break from the past, they do something dramatic early on in their presidencies. And then we did talk about economics because Heather said we have to put economics on the list and I'm going to let her talk about that part. But that's that's roughly what we were talking about. And we went after marching through the, our series of presidents and found four of them that in different ways will allow us to talk about this. Now, I'll say before we begin right at the outset, you know, we're talking about the whole range of American history and clearly the United States in my time period, you know, in, in early America and the antebellum period is a very different thing from what it is later. The government's different and a variety of other things is different. But that said, I think what we said about all of these presidents still holds true. And by looking at these other presidents, I think it'll be really interesting to circle back at the end and then think about what we think about the Biden presidency, given what we're thinking about these past game changers. Although I think it's probably worth mentioning that there were two presidents we couldn't agree yes. on, and we, we ended up we ended up actually fighting about them, and so we agreed not to talk about them either way. Although uh, maybe that'll be something we now talk that you about said sometime that. in the now future. Now that you said and that, everyone's going to be like, which <laughs> <No>. two? <laughs> maybe we'll tell you which two it yeah. was. And I believe the answer to why we wouldn't talk about one of them was I said because I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think what you said is I hate him. 
<laughs> well, but could, I could have put it that yeah. way more. But so we started with the obvious, and that was George Washington. And what he does and why, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer that he's a game-changing president. But it's not as simple as you think, because he really does have to establish what a democracy looks like, as well as what that's going to mean. And Joanne's got great stories about how he actually made that happen. Because by the time you get to my presidents, there is something to fight back against. And he's actually making his own, his own version of what democracy looks like. I mean, one of the things that I love about the period I teach, what I'm going to talk about here with Washington is a great example of that. And it's that they're creating, instigating, planning, improvising. There's a lot of improvisation happening at that moment, and that's particularly true with the presidency, among other things. It was important because what Americans expected at that moment, or what they feared, was just falling back into what they'd known before, which was monarchy. And the world was filled with monarchs. What it wasn't filled with was national executives who are elected into office and aren't monarchs but don't really have a set style as to how they're supposed to lead or who they're supposed to be. So Washington, to me, is fascinating because he steps into that zone and really deliberately, really consciously, on all levels, tries to create what a president is. One of the more touching artifacts that I've seen that shows him at the beginning of this process is actually his, a copy of the Constitution that belonged to him. And he read through it, and every time there was a statement about what the president of the United States did, he wrote in the margin, president. So he was literally figuring out what the job was piece by piece by piece. So he comes into office, and he's trying to prove that he's not a king. There's a big zone of leftover space to be not a king. So he's trying to be aristocratic and democratic at the same time. So he does a number of things, right? He decides on the aristocratic part of the balance. He's not going to shake hands. He will not touch people. He will not shake hands that way. Because he's got to prove to other monarchs that that he's real, that he's not just some schlep from <laughs> from the backwoods. Precisely. So so he has to do all the monarch-ish stuff and yet not be a monarch. And be someone who Americans feel is their leader and who is really not monarchical. That's the balance of being president in this period is being able to stand up on the international stage and, and be there for America, prove that it's a nation worth something, but not be monarchical in the process. A great example of this is um, when they're debating what to call this new office, the president. One of the suggestions is his elective highness, <laughs> which to me is <laughs> wonderful because it's like, well, highness, right? So it's monarchical, but elective because it's different and that's our system. So his entire presidency is like that. Isn't there something about, you told me something about he like walks around on certain days and takes a carriage on other days or something? That's exactly to where I was headed. <laughs> okay, yes, sorry. No, no. I just love that no, story. No, it's a good story. It's, so I don't, think of, I don't think of Washington really as human. Well, so right. it's kind of cool to hear this stuff. Right. No, I think no one thinks of him as human. And, and this is a human aspect of what he did. Yeah, so he was trying to act like a president, adopt the persona of a president, have the style of what a president should be. So apparently most days of the week at around three o'clock in the afternoon, he would leave his office. He would very deliberately walk a couple of blocks. He would pause and look up at a steeple, set his timepiece, 
and go back into his office, which seems as though it means nothing. But he was walking in the street, right? Unlike what a monarch would do. He was walking in the street. He was not in a carriage. He was not even on a horse. And that he got fan mail, particularly from Virginians who understood what it meant to be on a horse or not be on a horse. Fan mail saying it's excellent. The message you're sending with that is excellent, that, that he had these, these walks. Well, well, so then how does, but, but the whole point that he is that Jefferson steps in and thinks he's being too monarchical. How does he change the, that whole style? Well, right. So we, Heather and I talked about a dramatic change and that being one of the things that obviously represents these game-changing presidents. Jefferson, when he becomes president finally in 1801. <laughs> finally, according to him. <laughs> Well, that's true. That's true. Well, according to a lot of people, because that election of 1800 was really not a pleasant election. The Federalists had really been in power for the 1790s. They were getting a little cocky. They were starting to begin to silence Republican newspaper editors with things like the Alien and Sedition Acts to be able to deport enemies, alien enemies who they didn't like. Among other things, those are some of the things that led people ultimately to elect a president that was going to push things in a more dramatic direction. And to show that, to demonstrate that this was a really clear break, again, stylistically, he adopted things that to us might seem totally trivial, right? Style is like about fashion and somehow or other doesn't mean a lot. But style in this case means a mode of leading. And what he chose to do was a bunch of things like he walked to his inauguration. He didn't ride in a carriage, he didn't, wasn't on a horse, he walked. Again, noticed, ooh, like that's a statement. He wore very plain clothes. He wore rundown shoes, which um, a British ambassador was highly horrified by. He's wearing rundown, actually slippers. <laughs> I'm horrified, I'm disgraced, he is humiliating me. He initiated a way of seating at formal international events. Normally, it was very structured and very regimented, and everyone had a specific seat around the table, and everyone knew their place according to where they sat. He initiated something called pell-mell seating, which meant just what it sounds like. Go for it! Just run! First come, first serve. Precisely, which was democratic seating. So in a variety of ways, and stylistically, he's signaling, he's basically yelling, this is a different thing from these monarchical, aristocratic, highfalutin Federalists who came before, related to the fact that those Federalists were, in one way or another, asserting their dominance with things like the Alien and Sedition Acts. Jefferson becomes president, and very early in his presidency, he pardons people who were charged and punished according to those acts, right? Again, a strong statement. Yeah, this 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 is a change. I'm I'm stepping in and I'm doing something immediately that's like cutting a line. We're in a new place. And it was impossible to miss that message. And this is where this is one of the things, one of my favorite stories about Lincoln, because Lincoln is another one of the presidents who um who ended up being on our short list of people who marked a sea change. And um, one of my favorite stories about Lincoln is one that's not terribly well known. And that's that, you know, when he takes office, the southern states have already seceded, the deep southern states have already seceded. He's uh he's got to face this um 
this rebellion that is trying to break up the union. And of course, Congress isn't going to be in session when he uh, takes office in March. It's not supposed to be coming back into session until December, but he's going to call an emergency session in July, which turns out to be important as well. But one of the things that he does is shortly before the election of 1860, there's a slave trader arrested. And he's a guy from Portland, Maine. His name is Nathaniel Gordon. And he goes ahead. He has tried to import more than 800 Africans into America in violation of the laws against the slave trade. And he gets caught. And that's not uncommon. You know, there's a lot of um, of slavers that are still trading up and down the East Coast. And so he, um, you know, he really believes he's going to walk. And he is indicted just before the election. And then Lincoln's elected. And Nathaniel Gordon still thinks that he's going to basically be able to pay people off and going to walk. And Lincoln's like, no, there's a new guy in town and you're going to, to hang for this. And Gordon's lawyers are like, what are you talking about? People have been getting off for this for 40 years. I mean, you haven't, in fact, one of their arguments about getting him off is that they say, you know, you've never enforced this law. How can you possibly start enforcing it now? Accountability. And Lincoln's right? like, but we're talking about a yeah. sudden accountability. Well, and the sudden accountability thing, it's going to echo, you know, and when we, we will pick it back up, you know, and I look at this and I think, and we're, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but think of the Capitol rioters who thought that they were going to get away with what they were getting away with because they've been getting away with it since the Bundys and reach back in time in our society. And all of a sudden they're like, wait, you can't put me in jail. And that's exactly what Nathaniel Gordon said. You can't put me in jail. And Lincoln's like, Oh, yes, I can. And Nathaniel Gordon in uh, 1862 becomes the first and only American ever hanged for engaging in the slave trade. Lincoln would not hear his widow. He would not hear his friends. He said, we need to, to make an example of him. And it was a really dramatic, really, um, I mean, talk about saying there's a new kid in town and we're playing the game differently. But here's my question, Heather, related to that. How widely known was that? You're talking about people in his circle talking to him about it was did the public know or how did the public oh, yeah. know oh yeah oh yeah they knew it through newspapers and because it was a really big deal because this whole you know the whole american economy had been running <laughs> on, on on slavery and and it was kind of everybody knew it was happening everybody knew these slavers were still out there nathaniel gordon was not considered a um you know, what he did was maybe not talked about in polite circles, but he was, you know, he had a nice home, he had a nice wife, and it was pretty much accepted with his behavior. And all of a sudden, there was going to be uh, some repercussions for engaging in breaking the law, which people have been doing for 40 years. So that was one of those really dramatic moments where we tend to pay attention to what's actually happening in the battlefields. It's going to happen so quickly in, in April, for example, and all the things that take place after that. But that was a really big, oh boy, things are different now. <laughs> we should have had that on the list, Heather. The oh boy factor. <laughs> <laughs> well, people were shocked. And certainly, certainly um, Nathaniel Gordon's widow, a wife and then widow was shocked. She's like, what's going on here? I married a sea captain. He's not supposed to be getting hanged. But he was. Now, we've talked about Washington. We've talked about Jefferson. We've talked about Lincoln. There's another president that we're going to talk about who I, I bet that people could guess who this president is, but not necessarily guess everything that we're going to be saying about him. So go ahead and reveal the surprise of who this is. So, so the obvious, uh, the obvious person to talk about in this moment is 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. And what's interesting about him and the style in which he comes in, because what you set up was the idea that the presidents that we recognized as game changers were ones who recognized the moment in which they were living. And they were sort of embodying a pent-up demand on the part of the people. And FDR does that in spades. And what's interesting about that is, of course, he comes into office during the Great Depression, 1933. People are frightened. They are scared. They are depressed. The um, banks had been failing at an unbelievable rate. When he takes office, um, the number of banks that had shut down was... um, sort of extraordinary. There are about 18,000 banks in the country when he takes office, and they only have about $6 billion on hand, even though they have about $41 billion in deposits. And they're afraid that everything's just going to go straight, you know, straight to hell in a handbasket. And so what FDR does is he takes office and he declares a bank holiday. He doesn't say, you know, we're in deep trouble here. We're gonna, he says, we're gonna have a holiday. And that word holiday combines with what a friend of mine who lived through FDR's term and loved him said, you know, you just knew it was gonna be okay <laughs> when FDR was there. And I said, how did you know that? And she said, because of his cigarette. And I was like, what? And she said, he had that cigarette at such a jaunty angle. And, and he took an airplane to, he was the first president to take an airplane to his nominating convention and to give that speech. And you just knew that somehow that man was going to be able to fix things. <laughs> and, um, and he did, of course. That bank holiday sort of became a little party for four days. And by the time that the Congress had passed the new banking acts that put the country back into some sort of far- firmer financial footing, people felt good about the country. He had caught the moment and built the momentum. What I love about that is it's um, someone you know directly who is saying, the jaunty cigarette, right? The, the the sort of seemingly petty and unimportant little personal gesture that did probably part of what it was intended to do, which was show a sort of attitude that he was in control and he was someone who felt that he was in the moment in and of, his, of himself. So I love the fact that this person you spoke with totally got that message. Well, and now think about the present. Biden's dogs. Right. I mean, the dogs are not an accident, you know, in terms of restoring to the presidency the idea of ordinary Americans and and, you know, homeliness uh, is in uh, being about the home and and caring about people again and caring about things. Those dogs, I mean, they have their own Twitter account. I know. <laughs> they woof a lot on there. <laughs> yes. Yes. And one of them got in trouble recently for something. And there was like a news story about it. But that's a, that's a, it's a humanizing component, which I think presidents have to be aggressive in creating, right? Because that office, depending on how you use that office, no one's going to see that side of you unless you're deliberately trying to show it. So having, having any kind of pet, but having these dogs around, they're communicating a lot just in their presence. <laughs> Well, in every every way possible, with their teeth. (laughs) That's right, exactly. But so, okay, so if there's, if the the presidents catch a a dramatic moment and they have a certain kind of style, they also, as you pointed out, grasp just how much they can do with the presidency. So somebody like um, Harding didn't make our list because in many ways he represents exactly what we identified before, but he didn't grasp the power of the presidency at all. So- Maybe Washington is obvious, is it? 
Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think it is obvious, but in a sense, he, by definition, he had to do, he had to be in the moment and, and do something with it. Um, and he did, right? Because the nation had to be established and set up, right? He steps forward early on and says, okay, we need some financial arrangements because we have no credit and no real national treasury system. So go. I mean, he, he has to step forward at an early point, not even necessarily to make an impact or have a message, but really need, right? That, that that's where the nation is at that moment. It's new, it's fragile, it doesn't have a lot of roots and rules. I mean, I think I've spoken with a friend of mine uh, who's another historian, and one of the things that we talked about, um, and this actually has sort of confirms what we're talking about here, um, in the last four years, one of the things that we realized in a way we hadn't realized it before was the importance of norms. And, you know, all of us, including myself, right, I teach the Constitution all the time, and I always say when I'm teaching the Constitution, you know, it's remarkably skeletal for what it is, right? It's a short document for what it does. And what I knew but hadn't experienced before is the degree to which norms, which are not part of the Constitution, are really shaping what we do. And some of what Heather and I are talking about here does fall into the category of and that's part of the office, right? Them understanding sort of what people expect of them and then making full and strategic use of those norms. Yes, but one of the points that you made that um, that we talked about a lot was the fact that the real game changers are not, as I say, Harding and some other ones who come to mind, even though in many other ways they have caught the moment or they have used symbolism in, in certain ways, but they've also worked to make the... United States government more democratic, at least for the time. And that's something that always surprises me when you talk about Washington that way, because I don't think of Washington and Jefferson, and you know I don't like Jefferson, but I don't think of them as being terribly democratic. And yet you brought me around on that one. So how is Washington democratic? Well, in the context of their time, I mean, there are any number of ways in which we can point to these people and show how they're not democratic. In the context of that moment, though, Washington is is being an anti-monarch, right? And in that sense, he's pushing against a tradition that's much less democratic. I mean, the United States is not democratic by any means during his presidency, but that's the direction he's pushing, and that's the direction he can claim to be pushing, right? This is something new. This is something different. This is not the old world. This is a new world. And Jefferson as well. I mean, one of the major things being talked about, particularly in the late 1790s, is how democratic a republic is the republic going to be? How engaged in politics will normal Americans be? And the Federalists answer that question by saying, preferably not too involved in normal politics, right? We would prefer you quiet and out of the way. So Jefferson, for all that he does that isn't particularly democratic, he does step forward and say, no, actually, I think that, you know, the people should lead, and he means that beyond rhetoric. He basically sells himself as a president who is essentially of the common man, which, of course, that's not quite true, but He's making a statement that in the context of his time, it's a more democratic direction. So what does he do to make things more democratic? Because I always think of him as being the person who takes the vote away from women in New Jersey. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> takes the ballots out of their hands. Picky, picky, picky. <laughs> it's not Jefferson who does that particularly himself. No. It's his party in New Jersey. Right. But, um, but whenever I get an opportunity to take a pot shot at Jefferson, I always like yeah. to do it. But what does he do to go ahead and make, and, and make things more democratic? Well, among other things, he begins to pare down the government. He begins to carve oh. away 
extra, remove offices, sort of cut away what he considers to be hoity-toity, you know, official excess that in cutting it away will reduce the government down to a minimum and will help the budget in the process. So he's redefining the reach and nature of the government and pulling back on what it had been before. Then when we get to my guys, to um, Lincoln and to FDR, what's really dramatic about Lincoln's uh, stepping up to the plate is he very explicitly uses the federal government almost immediately to change the economic legislation of the country. And um, most people don't recognize that, in fact, our income tax comes from the Republican Party in 1861, that when, in fact, they have to go ahead and raise the money to, to put down the rebellion in the South, the obvious way to do it is simply to float bonds the way that the government did during the War of 1812. And they try to do that. It doesn't go very well. And so under Lincoln, Congress goes ahead and it floats a number of new uh, financial instruments, including uh, the idea of a new kind of tariff. Um, but they go ahead and they invent the income tax. And with that, there's, speaking of a sea change, they literally sit, stand up in Congress and say, say, we need to fund this government by putting the weight of it on the backs of people who can afford to pay. And to the degree that they can afford to pay, so that by Shocking. the end of the war, we actually get a graduated income tax. Yeah, and one of the Republicans actually says that the government has a right to 99% of a man's income should it need it. That's a Republican speaking in 1861, which is, I'm sorry, he says that later on. He says it in 62, I think, but during the Civil War. And what a change from the way the government had been under the Democrats before the war who were like, no, 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 the, the government is, you know, we're going to keep it small. We're not going to do anything to help ordinary Americans. And, and we, the wealthy people, certainly are not going to bear the burden of this government. So Lincoln's a huge, huge change in that. And then, of course, we have FDR. And FDR, quite out of the box, pushes back against the Republicans of the 1920s who were uh, deliberately, uh, like you say, cutting up the national government and handing it over to business with the ideology that business would really run the country better than anybody else. And FDR steps in and he says, you know, I welcome their hatred, but this is no way to go out to, to run any kind of a government. And from that, we get this new deal that regulates business and creates a basic social safety net and promotes infrastructure. And, you know, he does it out of the box with obviously things like the, the bank laws, but also the CCC, which the Civilian Conservation Corps, which people can see, you know, the movement of these young men into um, the plain states for the most part, but into, into rural areas in the country to go ahead and to, to rebuild the country and to uh, build plant trees and and go ahead and build some of the parks, uh, our national parks. And I love that because it, he, he sells it as such a great thing. You know, we're going to build this country and we're going to get these guys paychecks and this is going to be wonderful, but let's not be stupid. He is moving young men out of the cities right before the summer, which is when they riot. So it's just this beautiful moment that he manages to use his need to stop the, the violence or the potential for violence in the country, and instead is using it to redefine the country. And that's, that's I think, why for me, this American Rescue Plan has been a game changer, because 
for all everything else that Biden has done, and there's been a lot of it, this is the one that says we are going to be using the federal government in order to lift people out of poverty, especially children. It's focused on children. And we are really going to use the government for ordinary Americans. We're pushing democracy as opposed to what perhaps Reagan did or Harding did in 1921 or 1981. So it that's what that's why that particular law jumped out to me more than any of the executive actions, for example. Well, and particularly, too, the things that it's doing, and this is logical, but still, when you get back to dramatic break, right, the many things that that rescue plan is doing all represent a very fundamental dramatic break from what came before. Things that have been talked about, things that have been discussed as policy, things that Democrats have said they wanted. But if you're trying to signal a break and a change and something different, that kind of hits you in the face as something that is all those things. The other thing I think that Biden did really early on was having such a diverse group of appointments. Again, really dramatic, in your face. This is something different. There was value to it in and of itself, but by doing it the way he did it, and actually the way he did it was not necessarily screaming about the fact that, look at me, diversity. He's actually sort of been chugging along doing this stuff. But the stuff is so obviously a break from what came before that at least as of this moment, that's what it feels like is happening here. But you know what's interesting is that in all the cases we're talking about, the previous presidents in a way teed up the the people we're talking about. I mean, certainly uh, James Buchanan teed up, Lincoln, Hoover teed up. Mm -hmm, That's true. um, FDR and um, Adams teed up Thomas Jefferson and George the Third teed up. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, had, I knew I, I knew resist. you were going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> but the other piece that that you pointed out that I think is interesting and important because we also sat there and we came up with presidents who had done really important things but had not seemed to us to be game. But I want to bring up the person we argued about and never agreed about. No, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Please. All right. No one really wants to know about him, though, Joe. Well, yeah, no one will know who he is. Well, I think it's somebody that probably some people are thinking about, and that's Andrew Jackson. So we we talked. And that's all we need to say about <laughs> Andrew Jackson. So. <laughs> Which is pretty much one of the things Heather said when we began having this conversation. It, I argued that in some ways, um, not necessarily absolutely in policy, but in part him sweeping into office and representing a different, or presenting himself, put it that way, as a different kind of leader, representing a different group of people, bringing in a a sea change in the feelings of politics, sort of bringing in, again, what he considered to be, or what he pitched as, a more democratic way of dealing with government and a more democratic spirit for the United States. You know, I think this is when you and I, Heather, got to the point where we were like, yeah, but there are a lot of ways in which he's not democratic, and that's true of a lot of these people. So the question here isn't, are they sort of fundamentally hero presidents? The question is, what's the sweep or direction of what they do? So anyway, I thought Jackson counts for that reason. Heather really doesn't think that. Well, I, I had, this was such so splitting hairs. I didn't think Jackson counted because I don't think he believed it himself. I think he only talked about democracy because it was the only way he could get, it, he could get into the White House. And the first thing he does is he, you know, throws out the um, indigenous people out to, to Oklahoma and takes all their land and creates, you know, an oligarchy. So, but that's the point. He's not Mr. Democrat, but he's, no, he's no. making that message in an aggressive kind of a way that people understood. 
The other point of this that I thought was really interesting for our current moment was one of the things we identified is that these guys had to, to be a game changer. You had to change things quickly out of the box and get momentum behind you because there were presidents we identified who did really big things. I mean, in many ways, you could argue that um, that the Monroe Doctrine, James Monroe, was a big deal. But it's like in the last two and a half seconds of his administration, so nobody pays any attention to it. Or um, even some of the major legislation that takes place later on in someone's presidency doesn't count. And w- one of the things about all four of the people we're identifying, five if you include Joe Biden, is that they've done something really dramatic, really quickly. And they built momentum behind it. And that seemed to matter because I was interested in the fact that um, when Joanne was talking about this with uh, Washington and Jefferson, you said their second administrations were disasters. They were not good. They So it's interesting. That's a really interesting point. I did say that. They come into office Washington is setting precedents. Jefferson is saying, this is a change. And for both of them in their second term, people begin to object. People begin to criticize. They begin to make some policy choices that are not necessarily ideal. Very different spirit in their second term than in their first term, which is interesting. I mean, so game-changing presidents, it's a fair question to ask. Is it game-changing when they come in and in that first Term And do we count? I guess we're counting that, right? Because these presidencies don't have charmingly wonderful second terms, and yet they're seen as, as game changers. I mean, you, you said, obviously, that Lincoln wins the prize for having the most unfortunate second term. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So somewhere, sometimes we're a little irreverent when we talk privately, but yes. But I think, I think the question on the table is when I define game changing, it's changing an era. Not just changing what happened immediately before you, but are you somebody that the history books will remember as the beginning of an era? And I think you can certainly say that with Washington. You can certainly say that with Jefferson. You can certainly say that with Lincoln. And you can certainly say that with FDR. But here's one of the things that is worth noting, and this is obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Our cycling through presidents and making this kind of decision Of course, we know that they're the beginning of an era. The moment that we're in, we don't know, right? So it's very possible that this is a game-changing moment, but um, anyone on here who follows along with the webcast I do is going to laugh because I say this almost every week. Contingency, right? This This is such a moment of extreme contingency where things can change dramatically. We just had that for the last four years. We can have a gut feeling about where things are going, but in some ways we're really kind of waiting to see. So right now it it feels like it's fitting in with the pattern, but part of me really as a historian is standing way back and kind of looking to see what happens around this administration. So hold that thought, because I think we should end with whether or not we think we're in a game-changing moment. But this would be a good time, I suspect, to take some questions about this. So here we go. I'm going to ask you a question. Christopher asked, um, are you concerned about the growing tendency to govern by executive orders or executive fiat? And I should warn people that when I read things, I don't sound nearly as intelligent as the person does when they write them, rather than through the legislative process. Lincoln was very concerned about this, as you know. Is it no longer possible? Joanne, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we've had a lot of conversation about executive orders and and how many of them there should be and what they should be. And as a matter of fact, we're in a moment where the 
independence of the various branches of government and their power has been in some degree up for debate. But I'm not sure if I have a definitive opinion on whether this is possible. You might, given what you know more about the modern presidency. Yeah, I do, Chris. This is from Christopher. I do, Christopher. I'm very concerned about the drift toward uh, toward presidential power. And it does hearten me the degree to which Biden has been saying this is not my problem. This is something the Senate and the Congress have to work out. But it's not going to be fixed by one guy. This is a question of fixing the 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 basically impossibility of getting anything through Congress because of things like the filibuster that we've had this really dangerous drift toward presidential power since at least the 1960s. And it worries me very much. Yes. Um, and I, interestingly enough, I think we're in a moment where we're going to be reworking a lot of uh, pieces of our now somewhat outdated system. And that I hope is going to be one of them. I know a lot of people aren't concerned about it. I am. I don't like these mega bills we pass. I don't like the the fact the president just shifts his weight and does something. I'm I'm with you on that. I think this is a moment where in some ways we are, what's being exposed are some things about how we are deploying the constitutional process and how it is being shifted that perhaps was not in the forefront of our thinking. And um, there's a lot of discussion, not necessarily always in a negative way, about what we're doing with constitutional powers, what we should do with constitutional powers, where where we should be going. You know, the the last four years... Some of the positive things I think that happened in those last four years, one of them is it got people really thinking about the Constitution and what it does and what it doesn't do, which I think is wonderful. And another one is it it reminded people of something that was in the Constitution, that, which is protest, right? It reminded people of the significance of that and got a lot of um, younger people engaged in doing that. And I suppose part of what I'm saying with this, this is not necessarily related to Christopher's question, um, I just think... We're in a moment that um, I heard another historian, I think Rachel Selden, talked about um, constitutional creativity, right? We've had moments like that in the past. I don't know if we're in a moment like that now, but it's an interesting question that relates to what you're talking about, about the shifting direction of, of power and who has it and how much they have. It's also been a long time since we've had a whole bunch of amendments to the Constitution, and they usually go in waves. So, you know, it, it just my gut says we're going to be getting some there's some things that need to be ironed out for sure. But here's a great one here from Carolyn, um, who said she heard George W. Bush say that he wanted to be a page two president. Who were the folks who did not want to be game changers? Oh, really interesting. Um, because because we actually did talk about this, and this is this will go back to something actually here that somebody else asked about. Uh, what about tr whether or not Trump was a game changer? And that's that, um, here we go. Marsha asked, why wouldn't Trump be, uh, President Trump be considered a game changer? He was a break from what came before him and all that. We did talk about what it meant not to be a game changer. So you want to take that uh, to start, Joanne? Well, right. I mean, it's, but phrased that way, it's actually a really interesting question. Not only not being a game changer, but not wanting to be a game changer. And, you know, I'm the early Americanist. I always go back to early America. Um, and one person who actually very aggressively did not want to be a game changer was John Adams. How do you, how do you become president after George Washington and think you're going to do anything better than him in the public eye? 
So Adams, just like he kept Washington's cabinet, he, he kind of just followed in the footsteps of Washington because Washington was revered at the time. So not only does he not want to be a game changer, he feels the shadow of Washington looming over him. So he's trying just to continue on. Now that said, when we get almost in a war with France in the late 1790s and suddenly the public is cheering him on because he's a wartime or quasi-wartime president, he likes that, right? He, and, and he begins to be in the spirit of the moment in the late 1790s and instigate some extreme policies. But initially, he wants just the opposite of being a game changer. He, he wants to be seen as a continuation. And I think that that's the answer. There are presidents who want simply to continue what came before because they see themselves as people who aren't going to rock the boat. And especially those presidents who want other people to take action. So a great example of that would be Calvin Coolidge, right, who in the 1920s simply wanted to go ahead and turn the government over to business and and make sure the, the federal government became as invisible as it possibly could. You know, many of the late 19th century presidents were similar to that because they wanted really somebody else to run the government for the government to be as small as possible. And recently, you know, you mentioned George W., but George H.W. Bush fascinates me because George H.W. Bush, very bright man, very um, experienced, you know, head of the CIA. He, he had, uh, you know, had been in politics. He'd done all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that always fascinates me about George H.W. Bush is what he didn't do. So if you think about the fact that the USSR broke apart under his watch, imagine that on, under almost any other president who would have been like, aha, you guys lose, we won, you know, and then there would have been all kinds of incredible international fallout. And George H.W. Bush didn't do anything. He kept his mouth shut. And then, of course, the, the, he goes in, uh, to, the, uh, to the first Iraq war, and, and that's a different story. But, but he very clearly thought that not doing something was more important in that moment than doing something. But that's really hard for a president because you don't get credit for things you don't do. You only get credit for things you do do. So more often than not, they want to make some kind of a mark, especially nowadays when that's how you get headlines. I want to ask you one last question. It's a question from a teacher, um, which I'm particularly happy to see. So Michelle says, as a history teacher, I'm currently wrapping up a unit on the Great Depression. I try to stress that FDR was really changing our country by making the social safety net the responsibility of the government, not individuals. This is a tension that goes back and forth through history. Do you think we are still fighting for those New Deal values, or are we going beyond FDR's vision now? Oh, I love this question, Michelle. So we are in a moment when Really, since 1981 with Ronald Reagan, there has been a move on the part of lawmakers to roll back the New Deal uh, government that that FDR and the Democrats put into place during the Depression and during World War One, uh, during World War Two, and then got picked up, of course, by the Republicans under Eisenhower. Although they called it something different, they called it the Middle Way. But that was the idea that the government did have a role to play in regulating business and providing a basic social safety net and promoting infrastructure, and that, of course, was the, the the theory that both Republicans and the Democrats adhered to until 1981, when Reagan comes in and begins the process of unwinding that. And we're now at the far extreme of unwinding that whole New Deal government. And, and Joe Biden is being portrayed in many ways as a New Deal Democrat in that, for example, he has stepped up in favor of unionization. He's put uh, union organizers into his cabinet. He has... Um, 
spoken out in favor of the the people who are trying to unionize in um, in the South at the Amazon plant there. But I'm fascinated by by Biden's by the picture that he is building, because to my mind, he is not simply a New Deal Democrat. In fact, he's something quite different than a New Deal Democrat, because although certainly he is embracing the idea that the government has a role to play in the economy and in the, the social safety net and in infrastructure, he is not seeing that role as one of supporting you know, what is essentially a heteronormative white nuclear family. He's not looking for the job for the white guy to go home. He's not looking for Archie Bunker to have a job, which is Archie Bunker actually comes out of, he's a World War II veteran. Archie Bunker from uh, from Norman Lear's All in the Family is a World War II veteran who's unionized, right? And he works, I forget how he works, but he um, he's he, the basically the product of a New Deal government. Biden instead is focusing on children and on families, but not in a, in a nuclear family kind of way. And it fascinates me because it seems to me he's picking up the language and the mindset of the women who really started running for, for office in mm. a really big way in 2018. So Stacey Abrams, for example, and all the women who had been in Iraq and people like Tammy Duckworth who don't talk about, you know, I, you need to do things for my baby. She talks about her squad in Iraq and how they they brought her body back even though they thought she was dead. And it's sort of this new community idea, but it's a community idea that's based in children. So it's a, it's a really very differently gendered and different racial and ethnic kind of embrace of this government activism than I've ever seen before. And I don't think, interestingly enough, I don't think you could have done it had you not had an older white man putting it in place. And that's going to be really interesting. This whole child child credit, for example, people have been trying to get that through forever. He does it in, in a matter of, of weeks. So I think he's really different than FDR, although he's embracing the same larger theory. He's taking it in a really, really different direction. But what I love about what you just said is the gender component, because we're in such an interesting moment politically speaking, on many levels. And you're right that in this moment, he was the one who needed to step forward and do that. But it's in a climate where that kind of language, that kind of impulse is front and center. So it, it is actually, it's kind of related to what we're saying, right? It's, it's of this moment, that kind of legislation is born of this moment because in part of the change in the gender component in government and the spirit of government that that brings with it. And that also is a dramatic change from what came before. So actually that act as well, in and of itself, kind of fits with some of what we've been saying about these other presidents. I have a question I want to ask that we can both talk to. Yes. It's from Andrew. And it is, we often talk about presidential power and its growth. Could you speak to a time when Congress exercise power as a truly co-equal branch of government. And I, I can mention the 19th century, but then I want to hear what you have to say more broadly. We're so used to the presidency always being front and center and in a variety of ways, um, politically, as far as power is concerned, as far as weight and authority is concerned. But the fact of the matter is, for a chunk of the 19th century, Congress was in the news, the mass amount of um, column inches in newspapers was devoted to Congress. People were um, following along with what congressmen were saying. Entire speeches were printed in newspapers. 
Congress was seen as the center. Congress was seen as where the energy is. And that's shifted over time. But in some of the recent work that I did, that was fascinating because the degree to which people were not looking at Congress as a kind of representative body um, representing things that are broader, but seeing it as the center of action and engaging with their members of Congress in a really direct way that right now we don't see. It's an interesting moment. It's not like the current moment. And it, it's a, an example, I'm sure there are others, that the balance that we experience is, number one, not inevitable and hasn't always been this way over time. I'm laughing because I agree with the 19th century and the Congress people in the 19th century being where everything happens. And, and of course, that always makes me think of the giant fist fight on the floor of Congress where, you know, they all try and kill each other and finally someone yanks off a, a wig and, and stops the whole thing from happening. Yeah, in 1858, it's a huge fight. But what's interesting about that fight is it's a group of Republicans and a group of Democrats running at each other on the floor of the House and they're armed. So on the one hand, it's... It represents the, the, you know, the sort of nation eroding and others look at it and see it as the onset of war. So we could, another conversation we can have sometimes about Congress and what it actually represents. Well, in the 20th century, just to bring the, the, the question up to the present, the 20th century, um, Congress is very important as well. Um, right through, I would say, I mean, it goes, it comes and goes. It really kind of falls into almost disuse, if you will, in the 1920s for various reasons, largely because when the, the Republicans try and switch from being the, the anti-Woodrow uh, Wilson party to becoming the party in power, they don't do it very well. And so there's a power vacuum and it tends to go to the cabinet, believe it or not, to people like Andrew Mellon at Treasury and at Herbert and Herbert Hoover at, at Commerce. Um, but the 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 Congress becomes powerful again um, in the 1930s and in the 1940s. One of the things I think that, in the 50s as well, but I think one of the things that really kills the power of Congress is uh, the elections of the 18, 1960s, especially 1968, when Roger Ailes, the guy who's going to go on to start the Fox News Channel, packages Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon hates media after how badly he got destroyed with the debates with um, JFK in 1960. And interestingly enough, in those debates, they are both talking about their roles in Congress and literally what committees they sat on in Congress. So in 68, when they decide they have to package Nixon, they get Roger Ailes on board. And Roger Ailes says, you know, we got to stop trying to engage people in politics because politics is boring. What we have to do is we have to reach their emotions. We got to stop talking uh -huh. about policy. And we essentially have to turn our politicians into movie stars. He doesn't say that. I'm the one saying that. But in terms of it being boring and how we have to rely on people's emotions, he says that's faster, it's easier. And, you know, and Eisenhower in many ways gave them a blueprint for that because Eisenhower had the ticker tape parades and all that sort of thing. So increasingly since the 1960s, we have gotten this idea of a president as being more than a co-equal branch of government, but really the, the picture of the government, the person who represents the government. And I think that's one of the things that's bled power toward the president. But, um, but Congress, even until very recently, continued to be strong and had to work with the president. It's just not the way it was in the 1960s, in part because of that. I just want to thank everybody for coming because this has been an amazing opportunity uh, for Heather and I to have this kind of conversation and to share it with you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Cafe Live event with professors Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman. 
I would almost bet that, like me, you learned something new about presidential history. CAFE regularly hosts live events. Sign up for updates and our free newsletter at cafe.com slash brief. That's cafe.com slash brief. And stay tuned for more history content coming soon. <laughs>